The following sermon is brought to you by New Covenant Community Church, a Bible-based church located on Route 62 east of Johnstown, Ohio. To learn about New Covenant Community Church, visit www.new-covenant.org. Again, that is new-covenant.org. Now, enjoy the message. I hope that you would find this group of believers to be an imperfect one, but one that truly is thankful for what Jesus has done to, to take our punishment and to be our rescuer. Uh, you know, sometimes you experience things as a pastor that you may not have expected when you began ministry, and that's certainly the case for me. Um, and I probably would have thought about this if I had taken the time to think about it when the Lord called me into ministry. But one of the things that you go through as a pastor is you, you're with people in their very last moments of life. And, uh, and sometimes if the person's mind has decayed to the point that they are no longer mentally with it uh, and their body is, is the last thing to go, then they may say things in their dying moments that may or may not make any sense whatsoever. Their, their mind is gone at this point. But, but sometimes it's people's bodies that fade first and their minds are completely cognizant and completely with it. And it's always interesting when people, more times than not, usually when people have their mental state still with them, they can tell when their body is beginning to fade. And they may not always be able to pinpoint the moments of it. They'll usually say something. People will usually reference this as their dying words for people whose bodies go first and then their mind is still cognizant. Uh, And it's always interesting to see the family members. They lean in. And even myself, even if it's someone I may or may not know very well, they lean in and they listen closely to what it is that this person says as their, as their last words to those that are, are with them. As Paul is used of God to write to the church in Philippi, to this church that Paul we know love very much, uh, we see that here in chapter 2, you can go to the 12th verse, if you will, uh, he says some things that are almost the equivalent of what potentially could be his dying words. When somebody is on their deathbed, they, they may not know when their last moments exactly will be, but, but they know that their, their end is imminent and it very well could be nearby. And, and we see for Paul the same was true, that, that he said some things that perhaps were his last things that he would be able to say to this church that he loves very much. And I imagine that when God first used Paul to write this this letter to this church that perhaps the church at Philippi, they all leaned in and they listened closely as this portion of scripture and letter form at that point in time was read in their church service. And I hope that you and I would lean in and listen in the same way. So Philippians chapter 2, look to verse 12. We'll give it a read through. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. 
For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Join me in prayer, would you, church? Father, I pray that my preaching and all of our actions would be worthy of the gospel, Lord. That my preaching would be worthy of of what it is that you have done for me. That, That every piece of our being, Lord, would be impacted and impacted greatly by the true reality that a Savior that lived a perfect life suffered the sinner's death. God, we thank you for being our rescuer. In Jesus' name, and all the church says together, amen. Paul, who we know is the man that God used to write these words that we have been studying over the past several weeks, He was many things. He was courageous. Paul went from being a Pharisee to a Christian. This was a daunting, scary task to say the least. Paul was an educated man. The Bible says in Acts 22 that he was educated in the strictness of the law, of the Old Testament law of the Pentateuch or of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those books... The Apostle Paul likely had them memorized, perhaps in their entirety, verbatim. Paul was a bold man. He preached when it was dangerous. We know this of him in Acts 16, that he preached to the point where it caused him to be physically beaten. He was a bold man. He was used of God in miracles and great signs of power. God used him. Paul was the pen through which much of our Bible is written. 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament were were penned. God wrote them, but Paul was the pen through which God used to write those books. Another thing that we see that Paul is, however, is that he was realistic. He did not spiritualize life to the point of being disobedient to God. He was very useful to God. Paul spoke plainly of the cross, of work, like not just like the work of cross of the cross that Christ did for us, but like our actual work that we experience Monday through Friday. Paul spoke much of that. He spoke much of our physical needs, be it sexual or food or otherwise. Paul was just a guy. He was a realistic man. If he were to be alive in the time in which we are all here today, he would have gone and gotten a coffee like the rest of us and sat down and he, he was just a man. And something that we see that he had a very realistic, boots-on-the-ground understanding of is Christian persecution. And he had a great understanding of this both before being a Christian and after becoming a Christian. Uh, It says in Acts 7, verse 58, it says, And they cast him out, speaking of Stephen, of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of the young man named Saul and were affirmed that it was Saul who we know was formerly, his name was changed into Paul when he became a believer. But this man, Saul, he he affirms, Paul affirms this in Acts 22.20 when he says, And when the blood of your martyr, Stephen, was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death, and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. So Paul had a very realistic understanding of the persecution that he had administered, He also had a very real understanding of the persecution that he was experiencing. He's writing this. God is using him to write this text, this book of Philippians as we have it today, while he's in chains. 
And Paul knew that this imprisonment, imprisonment might end in death as it did for Stephen. Paul knew that. that he, was, he was very aware of that. So thus far, we've seen him write to this church that he loves. He's writing about the present joyful realities that brought him joy that he wanted them to have more of. It was the gospel. It was discernment, authenticity, the word being preached. There was this joy and unity that Paul says the church had that he wanted to have more of. It decreased the fear of the enemy and it uplifted the other believers around them. And then there's definitely a shift that we see in verse 12 that we just got done reading and following where he begins to speak of this possible martyrdom that he might very well experience, something that he knew well. And Paul communicates to this church. He says, if I perish, I want you to know the reasons for it. I want you to know the reasons of redemption. If, if these are the last things that I get to communicate to you, church at Philippi, if I never get to grace the pulpit in your church again, if I could say these last things to you, here's the things that I would have you know, and it's God's reasons for redemption. So let's go back to verse 12 as we go through it in more detail. Verse 12 coming immediately after a great call of humility for the believer and referencing our exalted Christ. In verse 12 it says, Therefore, my beloved, as I have always obeyed, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now there's a very common and dangerous misinterpretation of this text and people will read it and think that salvation is by works that you can work your way such that you're saved and that you can work your way into heaven now i hope that for all of us that it is clear and that it is plain that salvation is not by works we know the verses ephesians 2 8 through 9 well for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of god not of works lest anyone should boast and it shows us, church, that if you were just to look at the verse that we just looked at in Philippians, the work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, if you built a theology on that one verse alone, you would have an extraordinarily faulty theology. I grew up in Germantown, Ohio, which is kind of between Dayton and Cincinnati, and, and some of the friends that I had in high school were German Baptist, old German Baptist is what they were called. And, and as far as I can tell, their theology was, was very similar to that of our own this morning. Uh, it, but they, they have some of the attire that perhaps Amish people have. And, and I guess the way that they were predominantly different from Amish was that they had cars and they had TV. So I always called them Amish that cheated, even to their faces. And they always laughed. And I think just perhaps they were just being really gracious to me. That was probably horribly offensive and I probably shouldn't have done it. But, but I always called them Amish that cheated and, and, and they had the beards, the hats, the dresses, you, you know the look. We're not too far from Amish country. You, you know the look. And we had, again, these were many of my friends in high school, but before that, when I was about 10 years old, we were new in the community, and one of the families had reached out to my family to invite them to come to their church service. And, uh, and again, theology-wise, I think they're pretty similar to that of our own, but, but they interpret one text very differently than most people would interpret it. Uh, Paul, in many of his letters, writes about greeting the brethren with a holy kiss, which we know in biblical times was very similar to that of like what it is in Hispanic cultures today. You go up, you shake the hand, maybe this por portion of a hug, and then it's the, it's not an actual kiss, it's setting the cheek on either side of the face, and it would not fit any coronavirus protocol today, but, but that's, 
But that's how they did. And people in Hispanic culture still greet each other that way. And, and whether they're Christian or not in the Middle East, that's a very common way for people to greet each other. And I believe fully that when Paul said greet each other with a holy kiss, it was to greet each other warmly in that kind of way. We don't do that in this culture, but we shake hands, we hug, we, we greet each other warmly. And they interpret it, the German Baptist, the old German Baptist that I went to one of their church services. My family went, and I'm 10 years old. And they interpret greet each other with a holy kiss literally. And you see two old men with beards down to here, hats, and they go up and write on the lips. Y'all, at 10 years old, you never unsee that, okay? That's, but what sin, let's be very logical here, what, if you were an outsider and you walked into their church and you see, now, now husbands, and, uh, like, you wouldn't go kiss someone else's wife and someone's wife wouldn't go kiss someone else's husband. It was just the ladies and just the men. That's how that worked, but... But if you were to go into that atmosphere in today's world, what sin would you think that they struggle with? Somebody tell me. Homosexuality. Yes, you would think. So it shows us the great danger of building an entire theology on the nature of our Lord based on one verse. So with that understanding, knowing that we need to see all of what God says, that's why we have the entirety of God's word, and knowing that salvation is not of works, and knowing already what God had already communicated to this church at Philippi, that you have a fellowship together with Christ in the gospel, that this is about Christ. That these workings are by Jesus himself. That the fruit of this salvation is that you have a love for truth and discernment. And that you have this unity with one mind and one spirit for the cause of Jesus. Like it's already been communicated clearly that these folks here in Philippi, they're, they're believers. They're saved. So when the, the, then God says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, it's not at all talking about working your way to God. It's talking about these things that God has put in you. This fellowship together in the gospel. This love for the truth, this blood-bought life that God has purchased for you. Work out the things that have been put in you. Work out the life that has been purchased with a false accusation and a cat of nine tails and nails through his hands and his feet and a crown of thorns on his head and a beard ripped out and being mocked and punched in the face. Live out, work out that life is what I believe that God's word is telling us. If you put gasoline in a car, you put it in there for a purpose so that you can get in and hit the gas pedal and go somewhere. You don't put gas in the gas tank to simply let the car sit in the driveway. That's not what it's for. It's to be used. It's, it's for something. So if we could largely paraphrase what Paul is communicating here is hit the gas pedal of faith in your life. God has filled the tank. There's something in it. He's put something inside of it. Go and use it. Don't let it just sit in the parking lot. There, there's, there's no reason for that. Live out the life that's been purchased by what God has done for you. If you believe that, say amen. And it tells us in verse 12, part B, how we're to do it. What manner in which we are to get in the car and hit the gas pedal to use what has been put in us, what has been purchased by his blood. It tells us what manner in which we're to do that. 12, part B. It says, with fear and trembling. For or because it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Okay, that's the manner in which we are to do it. God has placed these things in us. God has put the gas in the tank. Hit the gas pedal. Use your life for the glory of God. Tony Evans one time said, he said, quote, God did not save you so you can look cute in church, end of quote. So, you know, I think that would be a good idea for us. Larry and Kelly, you guys ought to just, next week we ought to greet people and say, welcome to New Covenant Community Church. You are not cute. Like that would be a good way just to bring us all down on a Sunday morning so we can, 
You were redeemed to do something, church. You were redeemed for a life called of, of God, living it out, working out with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God has put this in you for a reason. So if we could compress down that statement, working out this faith with fear and trembling, working out our salvation, living out what it is that God has put in us, if we could compress this down, we could say that God's reason for redemption that Paul's communicating, number one, is for his praise. Have a conduct worthy, conduct worthy of the gospel, as Paul said that we read a couple weeks ago. Have a conduct that's worthy of the gospel. This is, this, is, this is for his praise. And I'm glad to be in a church with you where one of our core values is to praise Jesus through worship and the word. So if you play in church, if you, have, if you, if you understand what I'm saying, that you're, you're living a life of praise towards Jesus based on what he has put in your life, if you follow that along, say yes. So the next reason for redemption that Paul gives us here the next thing that he's communicating to this church, these group of people that he loves, and he's saying, in case I don't get off this wall that I'm chained to, here's, here's the next reason, here's the next. If I, could, if I could leave this earth and you're pointed for his praises, that's wonderful. Let me tell you about another thing Paul says that I'd love for you to be pointed towards, should I not make it off this wall? Look to verse 14, and I hope you pay close attention because this is a, a wonderful verse to interpret, and it's rather easy. It says, do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. So all you have to do, church, to really interpret this well, and I hope you have your eyeballs on the word of God right now, all you have to do is to roll this backwards. You ask yourself the question, how do you hold fast the word of life? How do you do that? Take the verse backwards. You shine as lights in the world. How do you shine as lights in the world? Roll it back. You be a child of God that's faultless in a crooked and perverse generation. How do you be a child of God that's faultless in a crooked and perverse generation? You roll it back and it says become blameless and harmless. How do you become blameless and harmless? You do all things without complaining and disputing. Did you connect, make the connection there? Just in case you haven't, it starts with saying do all things without complaining and disputing. That, or so that, you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. So if you follow it along and you've made that connection, you understand that not complaining or disputing, and disputing is a word we don't use commonly today, but you could throw in there arguing, same thing, that not complaining and disputing leads through a process that leads to you and I being lights in a world and holding fast to the word of truth. So what happens when a church is light and hold fast to the words, word of truth? What happens? And there's no explicit verse here that exactly tells us exactly what happens, but, I mean, let's use the interpretive sense that God gave a goose. What, what happened in Acts when a church was light and holding fast the word of truth? What has happened at any point in church history when a church has, has held fast to the word of truth and is light in the world? What, what has happened? I believe that it's maybe some of the things that we've experienced here at New Covenant. That people get saved, people get baptized. There's a working of God that's bigger than the people. There's a working of God that's bigger than the pastor. So God's reasons for redemption, number one, his praise. And number two, his people. His people. I'm glad to be in a church where one of our core values is to produce disciples marked by love and loyalty. 
Again, if we could go back and paraphrase Paul, I just think that perhaps he would say something along the lines of, don't argue and complain, church at Philippi, people, group of people whom I love so much, don't argue and complain, because if you don't do that, you'll become blameless. You'll become harmless in this world. You'll be without fault. You'll be lights. You'll be holding fast. You'll be able to be the vessel through which God can work. When Jesus said in Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We can be that kind of church. So if you follow the interpretation here, and I certainly hope you have, the next time that you come to church, whether it's in your home, in your house, or God's house, wherever it might be, and you plan to complain and dispute and do these things that are so clear in Scripture that we ought not to do, I've got two very spiritual words for all of us. Stop it! And I'm serious. They're, 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 and, and I'm thankful to be in a church that is, is Christ-focused, cross-minded, redemption-pointed people. I love that and I appreciate about this group. But we are as likely as any group to build a golden calf of complaining, of disputing, should that kind of thing creep in. Why should we not argue and complain? Why? Because when we do, if, if we argue and complain, we won't be blameless and harmless. We will be harmful and to blame. We won't be without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We'll be part of that crooked, perverse system. We won't shine as lights in the world. We'll be so thick in our own mess here that we can't even get out and do anything for the cause of Christ. And we certainly will not hold fast to the word of life, which is the complete undoing of any group of believers. The only thing that quarreling, complaining Christians have ever won is a victory for the devil. And I hope all of us see that with clarity and believe it in our heart to the fullest that we are able. Did you know that God's plan to save people, Jesus' plan to seek and to save that which was lost, it largely, if we could have a 10,000-foot view of that understanding of what Jesus has come to do, it involves two things. Certainly much more in it, but if we could just see the, the two major workings of God's intention, and this involves two things. It involves his completed work and our obedience what does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What is that? It's God's completed work. It's what Jesus has done. What does Matthew 28.19-20 say? It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. What is that? It's our obedience. And the real weighty part of this that I hope all of our hearts feel this morning is that there is no plan B. If this church were to collectively become a group of disobedient people that, that cared not for God's praise, that cared not for God's plan to save people, it, it is my earnest heart's prayer that this church would just be replaced completely go off the face of the map and be replaced with an obedient people that will, that will be the conduits through which God would save people. That is my earnest prayer. God, uh, God says through Paul to the church of Philippi, these reasons for redemption, his praise, number two, his people. If you feel the weight and truth of God's word today, say amen, I'll move on. So God through Paul says, work out your own salvation. Praise Jesus with what God has put in you. Work out that life of, that's been purchased for you. Don't complain. Be a light. There are people that Jesus intends to save. Should we not be a complaining, bickering group of people? And then it tells us, look to verse 16, part B. It says, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, 
And if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad. Everyone say the word glad. And rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says to this church, I don't want to run in vain. I don't want this to be a wasted ministry that God has given me. The metrics that we can see that Paul was using based on whether or not his ministry was successful was whether or not these people were pointed at God's praise and whether these people were pointed at God's people, being the conduits through which God would save people. Those were the metrics that he's been using. And as I've studied God's word, especially through this book, and, and become acquainted with the sinful, redeemed man of Paul himself and seeing how God used him, it's like, man, there are little pieces. I always feel really weird when I compare myself to an apostle. I don't really want to do that. But there's little pieces here and there that it's like, man, you know, I can kind of relate to that. I, kind of, I feel that in my own ministry. But this, this piece I read, and it's like, man, th this is completely how I feel. I don't want to measure the, the, the the success of this ministry and the ministry that God has given me on metrics of money and popularity or even being liked by you guys. Like, like that's not the goal. The metrics that I truly want to see at the end of my days here at this church, whenever that would be. And I don't know when that will be. But if I could leave this church and look back and say, these are people that are more pointed towards God than before. That's success. Here's a group of people that are pointed more towards godliness, living out this life that's been purchased such that they can be the, the conduit through which God is saving people and bringing people unto himself. That is success to me. And then if you look in verse 17, you see Paul does something interesting. He compares himself to a drink offering. And if you know your Old Testament well, you'll know that a drink offering was something that was given among many other types of offerings and sacrifices from grain offerings and animal offerings and, and all sorts of things. But this drink offering, is, as, as best I know the Old Testament, there's something, there were two things that were special about this drink offering. In the Old Testament, they take this thing that would normally be drank and it, they just pour it all out before God. And there's two things that I think are interesting about it, one of which being that a drink offering in the Old Testament was only called to be given in the land of promise. When the fulfillment of what God had called them to do and they walked into the promise of God, that's when the drink offerings were called to be given. The other thing that I think is interesting about a drink offering is they were entirely poured out. Many other offerings, they would, it would be a portion, a portion that would be sacrificed, a portion that would go to the priest, and a portion for this, a portion for that. With a drink offering, the entire thing would be poured out in its entirety. And if I could paraphrase Paul and what, he, what the Word of God is saying, I think he could, is saying to this church, if I'm being poured out, if I'm going to be poured, if I, if I don't make it off this wall that I'm chained to, if I, if I get stoned just like I watched Stephen get stoned, if that happens to me, and I'm entirely poured out for your faith, it's going to be inside the promise and inside the plan of God. So God's reasons for redemption, number one, his praise. Number two, his people. And number three, his plan. Paul says, because it will be in God's plan and in his will if I'm poured out in this way, verse 17b, it says, I am glad, Paul says, and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. If you put gas in the car and you hit the gas pedal and you use every last drop, 
That's good. It's, it's what it's there for. It's used to make this thing move. It's, it, it, there's no point in the thing being saved and held back. It's used to move this car down the road. If, if God has put things in me, let it all be poured out. If, if that's the plan, it will be in God's plan, then that's something worth rejoicing over. And it's just crazy to see. Here's Paul chained to a wall, knowing the end that may be coming for him. And he's rejoicing, and he's calling these other believers to rejoice with him that this cup can be poured out completely, that all the gas in the tank can be used for the glory of God. And boy, is that just different than we are today. Let me ask you a question. If following Jesus meant that you were going to lose some friendships, would you follow Jesus? If following Jesus meant that you were going to lose a job, and for your retired folks, this is a real easy to answer, but for those of us that are still working, this is a tougher question. If, if following Jesus meant that you were going to lose your job, would you follow Jesus? If following Jesus meant that you were going to lose your home, would you follow him? If following Jesus meant that you were going to lose your life, would you follow him? And I know what the answer is for many many people who call themselves Christians. And the answer to those, all those questions is no. They would not follow Jesus. And the reason I know that's the answer is because most people won't even lose their comfort to follow Jesus, much less anything else. A few years ago, I was on an ordination board for a, 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 man, a Chinese man that was being ordained into the ministry. He was not bring, being brought on staff to a church. The church was simply ordaining him and recognizing his gospel ministry that he was going to carry out in one of the local colleges. And he was going to minister to Chinese folks, which there were many of them at this particular college. And this pastor grew up in China. And once we got through all the formalities of all the questions and theology and doctrine, all the things that this group of pastors were asking this man, one of the guys stood up and he asked a question that all of us were wondering. He says, you know, he asked this Chinese man, he says, you know, we, we're always hearing these rumors about what things are like in China, in China for the church. Like, what's it like for pastors and Christians? And, and it, you know, like, you grew up in church, faithful, Bible-believing, gospel-loving church in China. Like, what was that like? for? What's it like for the Christians, believers, and pastors? What's it like for them there? And, and he proceeds to go on in his very strong Chinese accent, which I will not impersonate. He says, if you are gathering in church and you worship the state first, you can do anything you want. You can worship and praise Jesus and do anything you want, but you have to worship the state first. But he says if you're a real church and you worship Jesus only and you only glorify him and you only follow his leadership and you only trust him for your salvation, if, if, if you only trust Jesus based on the technologies and the spies that they have planted all throughout that nation that if a pastor stands in the pulpit and preaches that you must be saved to Christ and Christ only is the one that you need for salvation, no matter where you're at, in about two hours they can have you arrested. Up in the mountains, out in the rural areas with the cameras and facial recognition and all the technologies and all the spies that they have, in two hours they can have you in a cage. I'm not trying to start any arguments here, but just this past week on Wednesday, Mike DeWine comes out and he talks about this new mask mandate order that's addition to the previous mask. It's, it's a, again, the same mask order, but, but more things. And, and one of the things that's with this one is a retail compliance unit, which is a group of people that's going to go out and spy on businesses as to whether or not people are following this protocol for mask wearing, and should they not comply 
they can eventually be written up and then shut down. Now, I don't want to get an argument about this. I, I don't know the morality or the jurisdiction that he has to do that. I would love for any of you that are educated in this to come up to me after service and explain this to me. It feels and it seems strange to me that some man can just decide that for another person, but, but that's not the point this morning. The point is that overnight, in a nation where we all thought we were free, now businesses are being spied on. And the point is that you don't think that those kinds of things are going to come to the church they already are in the churches in California. Those things are coming, and many, this is the point this morning, many are not ready for that kind of persecution should it come, which I believe that it will. Sometimes I ask my question, how do you, how do you make a man like Paul? How, sometimes I ask myself the question, Lord, how, how do I lead a group of people to be like Peter? How do you make a man like Paul that formerly was persecuting the church? And then he just becomes, he has this real encounter with Jesus, and then all of a sudden, man, he is just on fire for the Lord. And he's going around, and the Christians are all scared because Paul's coming, and then he has to come and explain his, his conversion, that they don't have to be afraid of him anymore. And, and Paul, ultimately, his tradition tells us, was beheaded for his faith. And we know many times the Scripture tells us was beaten for it. How do you make a man like that? How do you make a man like Peter who denies Jesus three times just like Jesus said he would and then and then later as tradition tells us is, is killed for his faith and he's crucified upside down because he didn't even see himself worthy to be crucified in the same way that his master was how do you make a man like that do, do you do you probe his brain to get him to think a certain way do you brainwash him how do you do that I don't believe that they were brainwashed nor do I believe that they had electrodes hooked up to their brain I believe that they actually believed in Jesus I believe they actually believed that there was a man who is and was the Messiah. He was, he was God in the flesh, that he actually died on a cross, went into a grave, and then he actually rose again. That belief, that true reality of understanding that, it changed everything for them. It made, it made there be no question about what they would do if persecution came. So now, as we are here in the church in America, facing this time when persecution very well may come, very probably very soon, we're faced with this reality of what are we going to do should persecution come? And it's shedding a light on the fact that many, many, many people don't believe in Jesus. Can I just tell you, church, I, I have the same fears that probably all of you do. I think about all the same things that you do. I don't want there to be spies in our church that would try to they would try to censor what we're saying, what we're teaching, what we're believing of our Savior. I mean, I don't want those days to come. I don't want to have that kind of persecution. Certainly, I don't want that to come. I would never want, nobody wants that to come. But can I just tell you that I've, I've already made up my mind. I believe in Jesus. It's not, only, it's not a question for me in the future of what will happen if persecution comes. If it becomes illegal for me to preach this gospel, then there's someday that all of you are going to watch me march out of here with matching bracelets with a chain between the two. You very well may see that someday. And I don't care. I don't care. I've already made the decision. I believe my Savior. I believe that he rose from the dead, and I believe he did that, that he took my punishment for me. It's not a question of what will happen. Let it happen as it may. Let it be poured out like a drink offering. Let all the gas in the tank be used. I've already decided that I believe my Savior. A man named Herman Lang, he was a Christian. He was a German man, and he was a Christian when waiting for his execution by the Nazis in World War II, the night prior he's writing a letter to his parents and he says, I am first in a joyous mood 
And second, filled with great anticipation. In Christ I have put my faith. And precisely today I have have faith in him more firmly than ever. He then goes on in, in his letter to encourage his parents to read the New Testament. And then he says, look where you will. Everywhere you will find jubilation over the grace that makes us children of God. What can befall a child of God? Of what should I be afraid? On the contrary, rejoice. Rejoice. I don't know many believers today that like that man or like Paul can say, yeah, it's, it's a rejoice-worthy thing. Well, you know, what, what's the end of his praise? I think perhaps Paul was thinking about this as God was using him to write these words. What's the end of his praise? What's the end of a group of people being pointed at and directing their effort towards God's praise? What's, what's the end of a people that is concerned, wants to be the, the obedient servants of God that God uses to draw people and to, to see people come into God's kingdom? What's the end of that? What's the end of God's plan? Even if it means believers chain to a What's the end of that? The Bible says that it's rejoicing is the end of it. And this is not, if you don't believe in the gospel, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about right now, but I believe in my heart, I, I believe that I believe this, that no matter what you go to in life, your passions, your desires, the food that you eat, the things that make you comfortable, the, the, the sinful passions and desires of life, they cannot even compare to the joy that the Christian experiences being chained to a wall. And if you don't know God, that makes no sense to you whatsoever. But I believe it. Would you stand with me? So what will you be found rejoicing in today, church? What will you be found to rejoice in? Because the Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. In this world, in this earth, we will experience hardship like everyone will. But my rejoicing is in the finished work of Jesus. Amen. That's where my joy is. That's where my rejoicing comes from. And whatever that plan, whatever that process is, I trust him. I do trust him. I don't want to rejoice in the lacking leaving empty things that everyone else is rejoicing in. I'm not going to rejoice in those things. They may rejoice for a while, but they will not last. Isaiah 55, verse 6 to 7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly everyone say the word abundantly abundantly pardoned church I've been abundantly pardoned therefore I will live as abundantly as Christ will allow me and my prayer is that if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior that you will find him while he is able to be found let's pray Father come what may Let us be found faithful. Let us be found trusting. Let us be found rejoicing in your praise, in the saving of your people, and in your plan. We love you and trust you. In Jesus' name. And everybody says, I'd like for us to go into a time of prayer. You can come to the altar and pray. Uh, And also, these shoe boxes that you see to your right, 
Uh, we're going to be sending those off, I believe, tomorrow morning. So if you would like to come and pray over those, if you know this ministry, these boxes are getting ready to go all over the world. And with them, not just the gifts that are inside of them, but the gospel message that far surpasses the value of anything that we just got done putting in those boxes. And some of you spent a lot of money on them things. So, so come and pray for these boxes or for anything else that you'd like to pray about. Let's worship together.